Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Damian Garde, recording from STAT's worldwide headquarters in Boston. And I'm Adam Boyerstein, and I'm staring at Damian right now from said Boston headquarters. And I'm Rebecca Robbins, recording from very far away in Stats Outpost in San Francisco. It is Thursday, December 19th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. This is our last episode of the decade. So we invited our colleague Matt Herper to discuss the most important new drugs of the last 10 years. And speaking of the end of the year, it comes with a proud annual tradition that's voting on the best and worst CEOs in biopharma. We'll run down 2019's nominees and how they got on their respective lists. Gene therapy is poised to revolutionize the treatment of certain rare diseases, but not every one-time treatment is created equal. Science journalist Karen Weintraub joins us for a deep dive into the nuances of the technology. And last but not least, we'll bring back the lightning round for a special farewell to Matthew Orr, Stat's outgoing multimedia director and one of the senior producers of this podcast. But first, a word from our sponsor. Support for this podcast comes from Helix a population genomics company working at the intersection of clinical care, research, and genomics. Helix's versatile Exome Plus assay and scalable research platform makes it possible to perform population-scale genetic analysis and to uncover novel genotype-phenotype associations. Learn more about Helix's offering at helix.com stat. That's H-E-L-I-X dot forward slash stat. The end of 2019, and thus the end of the decade, sparked a discussion around our podcast water cooler about the most important or impactful drugs approved over the last 10 years. So to feed this debate, we compiled a starter list of about 50 drugs that secured FDA approval starting in 2010 through 2019. Now, that's too many drugs to populate a properly curated best of list. So we need to make some tough choices. Uh, And this is where the arguments start. And to have that argument, we brought on our colleague, Matt Herper. Matt, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, guys. Looking forward to fighting with you. So what we're going to do is we're going to go around the virtual room here, and we're each going to talk about the drugs that we think are the most important or the most impactful over the last decade. And I think, Rebecca, we're going to start with you. So give us your choice. So my answer is the bucket of cancer immunotherapy drugs. I think if you go back a decade, it would have been unimaginable the progress we've made since then. And a large part of that in cancer is due to immunotherapy. Now, to be sure, the progress is uneven. Not all patients are seeing the same incredible benefits from these drugs. Uh, But I think it's clear that immunotherapy has changed the way that certain cancers get treated uh, in an incredible way. So I think that story starts in 2011 with the approval of Yervoy um, that was ultimately awarded with a Nobel Prize. But the more impactful drugs came in 2014 with the approvals of the checkpoint inhibitors, Opdivo and Keytruda. Uh, And then I think rounding out that story are Kimraya and Yescarta. Those are the CAR-T drugs that are approved in blood cancers. I think that's a great choice. And Keytruda and Opdivo also shared a Nobel Prize. And Keytruda looks like it may become the biggest selling drug ever. Damien, what's your pick? The drug approval that I feel like we're still processing and will be for years to come, I chose it not necessarily because of its effect on patients. I'm thinking of Therapeutics treatment Exondus 51, which was approved in 2016 to treat uh, a form of Duchenne muscular dystrophy. Without relitigating that whole thing, That was a controversial approval. Sarepta submitted evidence from a very small trial that basically the idea was they had observed an effect in the body that didn't actually translate to patients getting better from Duchenne muscular dystrophy, but they provided a hypothesis that said that it would. And the FDA bought that. 
what I think the legacy of that is or will be and continues to be is not necessarily whether Exodus 51 works, which we actually still don't know, but rather the way the conversations around drug approvals changed as that happened. When the intra-FDA controversy was taking place, documents surfaced that made us all realize that there was infighting within the FDA. There were internal struggles going on. There were people pulling rank. There were lots of very salty language. And it kind of gave light, I think, among the sort of like biotech hoi polloi to basically any conspiracy theory you want to believe about a drug or a company you're invested in and its prospects at the FDA. The Sarepta saga gave you a little tendril that you could latch on to. And so the conversation, especially on Twitter, which I spend too much time on, around drugs like Exodus 51, drugs whose approval is kind of up in the air and might require the FDA to be more lenient, has gotten that much more toxic and that much more fractious to where I feel like it's sort of shattered our ecosystem for talking about drugs. And I think we've seen it play out in the saga with Amarin most recently, a drug for cardiovascular disease. And I think that we're going to be living with the legacy of the Sarepta situation for quite a long time. And I think the impact of Exonda 51 also is a story of patient empowerment and how patients and, and their advocates and their families became very influential and in some positive ways and maybe in some not so positive ways in sort of developing drugs and particularly when it came to the FDA, lobbying the FDA to approve drugs. Because I think that, in you know, in, certainly when the case in Exonda 51, if it wasn't for the patient advocates, you know, basically lobbying, you know, insisting, demanding that that drug be approved, it probably would not have been approved. So, Adam, what would your pick of the most important approval of the past decade be? So I'm going to go with the cystic fibrosis drugs that were developed and approved by Vertex Pharmaceuticals. And that is, you know, starting in 2012 with Kaleidico, uh, going through Orcambian Simdeco, and then ultimately the biggest drug just most recently, the 2019 approval of Trikafta. And I think what's interesting about those, I think it encapsulates a lot of different things. It encapsulates sort of the, the whole rare disease, orphan disease saga of, you know, developing drugs for, you know, relatively small numbers of patients. And and also the way that kind of deep science, the way that the pharmaceutical industry kind of peers into the biology, understand what causes disease and then develops drugs around that. Maybe on the slightly negative side, I think the whole CF vertex approvals also raises the issue of drug pricing. These are super expensive drugs. And, you know, vertex has been criticized for the hundreds of thousands of dollars that these drugs cost. In Europe, they've gotten a lot of pushback where they haven't been able to get widespread reimbursement. So, you know, kind of brings up that whole drug pricing issue as well. I agree with all of your choices, but this has been a decade where there's been a lot less innovation in kind of broad diseases that affect a lot of people. There's been a lot of rare disease drugs, including most of what we just talked about. But there has been some real movement and some real uh, big drugs in diabetes, in particular the GLP-1 inhibitors, which are, but also these drugs called SGLT-2 inhibitors, which initially didn't look like that big a deal. And then there were a whole bunch of clinical trials that the makers of these drugs were made to do for safety reasons. And these medicines, these are Jardiance, Farxiga, Invokana. They reduce cardiovascular events and have these, these great big benefits that we still don't really understand. But so it's a real story of that doing big, large-scale clinical research can still have an impact on the diseases that affect lots of people and cause lots of death, cardiovascular disease is still 
the leading cause of death. So that's my pick there. But I want to mention one more drug that we haven't mentioned that, like the Sarepta approval, but even more so is important for another reason I think we should talk about, and that's subsis. It's a fentanyl spray that you spray in your mouth and kind of became one of the symbols of the opiate epidemic, I think. And on a related note, Matt, you know, there was the 2014 approval of Ezvio, which was an opioid overdose treatment. And I think, again, that is something that's very indicative of the 2010s where we had this rampant opioid crisis. And, you know, one of the most impactful drugs is a drug that, you know, that was required to use because there were so many people who were overdosing from opioids. And this was a way to sort of bring them back to life. So we've been talking about the most important drugs that did get approved. On the flip side, what do we think is the most important drug that people had hoped to get approved, that people had hoped to have available by 2020 that we don't have? I think it has to be an Alzheimer's. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't think you're going to get any disagreement there, Rebecca. We might come back and do this 10 years from now and we have the same argument. Yeah. Well, on that note, Matt, thanks for joining us. Thanks, guys. At STAT, the end of the year means cold weather, holiday travel, and a flurry of concerned emails from public relations professionals. That is because our very own Adam Feuerstein maintains the proud tradition of nominating the best and worst CEOs in the drug industry and then inviting readers to vote on a winner. Each list is up on statnews.com as we speak, and if you act fast, you can get your vote in before polls close. So before we get into this year's list, Adam, tell us, how long have you been doing this? Rebecca, I've been doing this a long time. 2008 was actually the first year, and I think I was doing this as a way to kind of review the year, you know, kind of through the lens of best performing and worst performing biotech companies and the CEOs who run those companies. It was a good way to kind of look back and assess what had just happened over the previous 12 months. So looking at the best CEOs list, one name that I thought was particularly interesting was Ted Love, who's the CEO of a company called Global Blood Therapeutics. Watching from a distance, it feels like over the past three or, or maybe more years, everything Global Blood said it was going to do has encountered all sorts of skepticism. And it's been a very hotly debated company and Ted Love by extension. Right. What happened this year that ended him on this list? Well, I mean, this year he's on the list because their sickle cell disease drug got approved. Throughout this process, and obviously these things take longer than one year, I was skeptical of some of the things and some of the strategies that Ted put in place at Global Blood. Um, but, you know, he kind of showed everyone that he was right and they got the drug approved. And so I think for that reason, he's a well-deserved nominee on the best CEO list. Another member of that list is Anno Van de Stolp. He's a CEO of Galapagos. Adam, tell us, how did he get on this list? Yeah, so Anno is on the list because of this gigantic $5 billion uh, research partnership that he negotiated with Gilead Sciences. It was one of those kind of the bigger or one of the biggest research uh, collaborations in 2019. And it's a great deal for both sides. You know, Gilead struggling with growth and needed a new pipeline. And Galapagos has this sort of deep bench of scientists, um, drug developers. And what was amazing about the deal is like you would think that, you know, well, why didn't Gilead just go and buy Galapagos? But, you know, Ano didn't want that to happen. They wanted the company to remain independent. So they sort of, you know, did this deal where they got a lot of money, uh, got a, a partnership with Gilead, and and they were able to remain independent at the same time. So I thought that put them on the list. So pivoting to the worst CEO list of nominees, uh, a name that stood out to me was Michelle Vantasos, who is, of course, the CEO of Biogen, a multi-billion dollar storied biotech company that has been 
discussed quite a bit in 2019 on this podcast and elsewhere. So, you know, we mentioned Alzheimer's earlier and obviously aducatumab with Biogen. But I think, you know, the reason that he's on this list, I think, is because Biogen finds itself in this really very at-risk situation where, like, they've bet everything on aducatumab and also this patent challenge for their biggest multiple sclerosis drug. And, you know, I, I just I find it fascinating and somewhat like baffling and disappointing that a company the size of Biogen kind of finds itself in this sort of do or die situation. I have pointed out and others have pointed out that there are ample acquisitions that Biogen could have made over the past year or previous years that would have diversified their pipeline, kind of given them ways to grow. And they haven't done that. So for all those reasons, Michelle finds himself on the worst CEO list. We also have a return nominee to the worst CEO list. That's Ron Cohen of Accorda Therapeutics. He made your nominee list in 2017, and he's back this year. What happened? Yeah, Ron has really great hair, as other people have mentioned over the years, but he's not a very good CEO. And, you know, this year they had to go out and fire 25% of uh, their employees. They had a uh, Parkinson's drug that just really flopped commercially. And, you know, this is the second time that the company has kind of gone through a mass layoff. They said they did the same thing in 2017. Now, I'm willing to kind of say that, you know, one time, you know, massive layoffs happens once, that's okay. When you have to do it a second time, that's really kind of beyond the pale and unacceptable. And yet somehow, Ron survives all this. I mean, this is a company that's kind of going nowhere, but yet Ron Cohen seems to just survive. So um, he's on the list. As we mentioned before, you can find both lists on statnews.com and you can get your votes in by the end of this week and the results will be available next week. we're going to talk about viral vectors, the viruses that serve as delivery vehicles for the gene therapies that have generated enormous excitement and investment over the past few years. It's a technical and pretty complex area of gene therapy, but it's also an incredibly important one. Here to give us a primer on the viral vectors is Karen Weintraub, a science journalist who just put together a deeply researched 67-page report on the space for STAT. Hey, Karen, welcome to The Read Out Loud. Hi, thanks so much. So most of our listeners are already familiar with how viruses like the kind that cause the common cold work. A virus invades the body, it slips into a cell, and then it commandeers the machinery of that cell for its own purposes, typically to duplicate its own genetic material. So Karen, tell us, how do the viral vectors used in gene therapy work differently? So they're hijacking the machinery of the cell in much the same way, but instead they're inserting the gene of interest to make a correction or they are potentially cutting out a gene. And so as you outlined in your report, there are different kinds of viral vectors used by researchers for different purposes. What are the major differentiations in the space and why might someone elect to use one type of virus in a certain circumstance versus another in a different one? Right. So there are two biggies. One is lentivirus, which is mostly used in blood cancers right now because it replicates really well. Uh, so well that it's dangerous to use it in the body. It um, can go kind of to places that researchers don't expect or don't want it to go. And so they use it outside the body on uh, blood and other things where they can check and make sure that the virus has inserted the gene in the right place. The other is adeno-associated virus. So way back in the 1990s, uh, researchers were using something called adenovirus, which is essentially the common cold. 
and uh, they unintentionally ended up killing one of the patients in a clinical trial, and that froze the field for many, many years. Um, what they've come up with is adeno-associated virus, a similar virus, but that seems to have a much better safety profile, and that gets into cells uh, that don't replicate rapidly. Lentivirus goes for cells that do replicate rapidly and seems to be very safe. The big challenge with adeno-associated virus, or AAV as it's commonly called, is making sure that they can get enough vector into the relevant cells to have a positive impact on the patient. So Garrett, who makes viral vectors? Let's say I'm a manufacturing executive at a gene therapy company like Spark Therapeutics or Avexis. Who do I call up to buy a supply of viral vectors? So some folks are making their own. They're bringing it in-house because they want to have more control over the process. I talked to one woman in a very small company who wants to be able to make vector literally for, for diseases that have a dozen patients worldwide. Um, so she wants to have control, but she might have 10 or 12 different indications. So she wants to be able to make those changes herself. So she has created a manufacturing facility for her own company. Other companies outsource this. The production process is quite complicated. The big companies can do a better job of improving scale and manufacturing. At least that's what the big companies say. So uh, you could call up. Brammer Bio was a leader in the field, uh, recently bought by Thermo Fisher, which now provides this service, for instance. And so, Karen, are today's viral vectors good enough for researchers' purposes, or is there a need in the field for better viral vectors? Many of them talk about the need for much better viral vectors. Most of the vectors used today were developed in the very, very late 90s, very early 2000s. So they're now 18, almost 20 years old. And there's been very little advance uh, in the last 18 years. And so there's a lot of hope for the future, but also a lot of desire for improved vectors. The reason there hasn't been that much improvement is that it's really hard to improve that much on nature. If you mess with a virus, you're just as likely to weaken its ability to get into a cell as you are to improve its ability to deliver the payload you want. And as you explained in your report, engineering viral vectors is not easy. What are some of the challenges that make innovation in that space so difficult? The complexity really comes from the number of variables. So one researcher I talked with described it as a 60-piece, like a ball of Legos. And you can change out any of those 60 pieces or many of those 60 pieces and have different effects. Again, often screwing up the virus instead of making it better. And so making changes that improve the situation rather than worsen it is a challenge and making changes that you can control. And so they've taken to artificial intelligence, deep learning uh, rubrics and trying to vary things on a computer first before testing it in a virus. And that's having some showing some advances. Nothing to write home about yet, nothing to, to, to write papers about yet, but they're optimistic that that will lead to, to some new developments. Karen, thanks for coming on the show. No problem. Thanks for having me. And as a reminder to listeners who might be interested in going deeper on this subject, you can purchase Karen's report for $499 on Stats website. Next up, we are bringing back the lightning round as a special farewell to one of the senior producers of this show. Matt Orr has been Stats Multimedia Director for the past year and a half. He's also a multimedia whiz, whipping up incredible videos since the very beginning of Stat. He's also one of the co-creators of this podcast. Now, Matt is headed off to a new adventure in the new year. He and his family are moving to Washington, D.C., where he will become a full-time professor. He'll be teaching multimedia journalism and broadcasting to grad students and undergrads at Northwestern University. But before he goes, Matt is going to join us for this segment. 
Matt, thank you for humoring us with this. You're welcome. Thanks for putting me on. This is fun. So, Matt, I think you know how this works. We're going to ask you a question in which you must pick between one of two binary options. Uh, there will be no hedging or dodging the question. Uh, I repeat, Matt, you have to pick one and only one answer. Uh, and we will let you explain uh, your reasoning. All right, Matt, are you ready to get started? I am ready. Let's try this. Okay, first question. So, Matt, you are a native of New York City and thus a New York sports fan. Starting from today, which team will win a championship first, the New York Mets or the New York Knicks? Wow. Um, I am a fan of both teams. I think the Knicks will not win in my lifetime. I think the Mets, ha the Mets have won in my lifetime, 1986. I was 14 years old. It's one of the highlights of my youth. So I'm going to go with the Mets. In college, there are lenient professors and then there are disciplinarians. Matt, which of the two are you going to be? <laughs> um, well, if any students are listening, I'm going to be the lenient type. Oh, good for you, Matt. <laughs> All right, Matt, so here's a yes or no question, okay? Um, do you have a favorite video that you've made during your time at STAT? Man, that is a tough question. There's been so many pieces that I've worked on, that my team has worked on, that I'm incredibly proud of. You know, if I had to narrow it down, we did a story in 20. 17 uh, that was called Dope Sick that was about two boys in Toledo, Ohio who were addicted to fentanyl, which was a fairly new drug at the time in terms of public awareness. And my colleague Dave Armstrong and I chronicled their experiences. One of the boys actually died of an overdose. The other one gave him the dose and went to prison for giving him the, the drug. So, you know, it's a very sad story, but an important one. And I think that's that's one I'm certainly proud of. Similar question for you, Matt. Do you have a favorite episode of this show? Yes or no? Just say all, um, just say all of them. I'm going to say the pilot that never aired. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> because that, was, that was so bad. That was, it was actually, you know, the funny thing is like the, our opening theme music, I just picked that randomly for that pilot and it stayed the whole that time. Was, but, so. that, but that was probably the best thing about <laughs> the, the, that episode. I think. Yeah. I don't know. Honestly, I, I love all the episodes and it's just been a pleasure to work with you guys on it. You guys work so hard on it. Hyacinth Empanado, who produces the show, works incredibly hard on it. So it's been fun. So Matt, you are the only person on the STAT staff who has made a feature length film. Uh, which is the excellent documentary called Augmented. So with all of the end-of-the-decade list-making going on, do you have a favorite film of the 2010s? I watch mostly documentaries, and one that really stands out for me is a film called Detropia. It's just a beautifully made documentary about uh, the city of Detroit. So Matt, I have a linguistics question. Let's say you are queued up outside a restaurant. Would you say that you are in line for a table or online for a table? <laughs> Um, <laughs> online. Fair. You gotta be honest. No, that's fair. You know, that's that's what we said growing up in Queens. What can I tell? <laughs> so another linguistics question for you. Uh, please help us settle this office debate. How do you pronounce G-I-F? Is it GIF or JIF? It's GIF. It is not JIF. I know the guy that invented it says JIF. Like, there's no way I can I can say that. <laughs> All right, and so here's, a, I think, a D.C. question. You're moving down to D.C. Here's a D.C. question for you. Half smokes or mumbo sauce? I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> Damien, help us out here. Well, half smokes, it's a, a food staple. You can get it at Ben's Chili Bowl. And mumbo sauce is a, is a sweet kind of barbecue sauce often put on fried foods. You'll have so much time to experience it. Okay, I have to get back to you on that. <laughs> well, that was fun. Matt, thanks for sticking around for the lightning round, and good luck in D.C. 
Thanks, guys. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Before we go, a quick logistical note. This podcast will be on vacation for the next two Thursdays uh, because of the holidays. We'll be back with our usual programming on Thursday, January 9th. Thank you to Heisen Tempanado, who produced this week's episode. Matthew Orr and Alyssa Ambrose are our senior producers. For Matt, that's the last time. (laughs) We're very sad about that. Rick Burke is our executive producer. And as always, we would love to hear from you. Tell us what you liked about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and which guests you want to see on this podcast in 2020. You can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like the show, please do leave a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you in 2020.